Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 59 of our podcast. As always, I am Dr. David C. Noe, here in the Vomitorium on a crisp October, Octobral? Octobral. A crisp Octobral evening <laughs> yes. with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Winkle. How are you, Jeff? Good. Can I get in my middle initial? You are Dr. David C. Noe. So yeah, get the D- T in there. Yeah, Jeffrey T. Winkle tonight. And, which is uh, for Tenacious. Tenacious D. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. There we go. <laughs> I wish it was for Tenacious. It stands for something else. Yeah, right? it does. Uh, Thomas. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But I'm doing well. It's very Octoberly mm-hmm. outside today. Beats March, that's for sure. Yeah, but finally today, I kind of we felt we uh, hit some of that kind of that crisp fall, you know, chill in the air. Yes, I think the high topped out at about 52 Fahrenheit. Which is, which, in my opinion, that's that's uh, that's that's primo. That's that's pretty cool, honestly. Yeah, and it's, it's much lower in metric. Way, way lower metric. Absolutely. It's, more, it's colder, way no colder. No kidding. So we have to give a shout out. <laughs> yes. And this is to a gentleman that you and I both know. It's true. How about you lead the way with this yes, one? Yes, this is, comes from uh, Dan Vutberg, and he writes to us, I teach eighth grade English history and Bible at Grand Rapids Christian Middle School. My interest in the classics probably began with a sweet illustrated paperback book of mythology that I checked out from all places, my church's library. All right. Let's hear it for the church library. Indeed. I was in Latin class with Jeff in high school. It's true. And if memory serves, a philosophy class with Dave at Calvin University. Yes, we took uh, the philosophy of aesthetics. Who was that? Uh, I never took that one. Was that a good one? It was a good class. Yeah. yeah, it was in that class that I paid one of my classmates $5 for her perfect class notes. You did? I did. <laughs> Were you like, observing this like across the aisle and say, man, she's got great notes? I, it's someone we both know. Okay. She's his PhD in philosophy now. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we're talking <clears> and about. I knew that I'm, I'm understanding the material yeah. because that, that's my specialty. Mm-hmm. I'm not a very good note taker. So we worked out this deal. Now, she also understood the material probably better than I did. Yeah. But she was generous. And I said, hey, can I just purchase those notes from you? And then we studied together and it worked out. She, so she took the fiver. That's right. Yeah, excellent. That was this a good was, deal. This was pre-inflation. I mean, this was yeah. what late '60s, something like that. <laughs> right, so five dollars right. went a long way. Long then. ways. That's right. Absolutely. I, right. You know, you know how to stretch your note-taking dollar. Absolutely. <laughs> I know what I'm good at. So let's go back to the shout out. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So uh, Dan continues. I still take every advantage of opportunities to teach my students Latin whenever I have the chance. Mostly things like caveat emptor or the Latin roots of English words. Keep up the good work of making the classics accessible and applicable for all. That's really nice, Dan. So Dan, he was a, uh, he's still a good friend, but in high school, he was a very uh, close friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ran with the, with the same crowd. Yeah, I can't see you running, frankly. No, it was, it was kind of a, a, fig- a huffing job. <laughs> it's a figure of speech. Yeah. Uh, but Dan, uh, brilliant guy. Great, sharp guy. Sharp guy. Br- great thespian. Yes. Yeah, he acted in all the friendly. plays. Friendly, yeah. Very friendly, uh, personable. I remember in Latin class, um, he and I would, would try to translate to Latin just kind of you know odd phrases. And right. His catchphrase was, was this is not my bag. That was and his so, catchphrase? Yeah, so then it's, we, we, with Latin, so it was, uh, yeah, hic non, hic non est uh, culius meus. There you go. Yeah. So I remember him writing that on the board. That was his his catchphrase. Everybody yeah. needs a catchphrase. They do exactly. So Dan, thank us. you so yeah, much for listening to the podcast, keeping the flame alive out there, and your teaching and instruction. Such important work you're it, doing. It is indeed. Yeah. So Dave, what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we're going to talk about two Ovidian vignettes. A vignette. Yes, or vignettes, as I like to call them. Is that is that different than just like a, a story? 
It is yeah. because it has the facade, the penumbra of sophistication. Oh, I see. When you use a word that, you know, comes not from Anglo-Saxon, which is uh, probably not where story comes from either, but <laughs> for the sake of my example, you give it a certain um, veneer of respectability. Let's talk for a moment about the word vignette. Let's do. I did a little bit of research and we have an etymological aperitif. Man, you're just dropping all the, That's right. the bombs tonight. So all the right. word vignette, it's a noun. It originates in 1751, and it means a decorative design. Originally a design in the form of vine tendrils around the borders of a book page, especially a picture page from the French vignette, from the old French diminutive of vigne. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Meaning vineyard. The sense was transferred from the border to the picture itself. So if I'm understanding this correctly, mm -hmm. and this is from etimonline.com, you'd have a page, and around the borders of the page, you would have a nice uh, illustration of the tendrils or the vines of grapes. Yeah. And so that was a, a vignette. And then the idea transferred from the margins to the story itself that gotcha. was thus illustrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it comes to mean a literary sketch first recorded in 1880 and uh, probably from a photographic sense. But you were saying that the, but the word itself kind of implies uh, it's something loftier than just a tail. Well, that was just yeah. really to get you off my case because you, <laughs> all right, you, all right, did, you <laughs> didn't like how does that differ from a story? <laughs> first, I didn't say it like that. I think you did. I might have, but okay. uh, uh, let, let's, let's move on. Do you like the, the word vignette? I like it. I like it a lot. I do too. I like, I like the word aperitif too. You maybe do? Even a little bit more. More than vignette? <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> So we got an opening quote here, don't we? Mm -hmm. It looks like you, uh, I'm looking at your notes here. It looks like you've got a few opening I quotes. I have a couple. Okay. So the first one here was written by a man named Torquato Tasso. Now, Torquato Tasso was himself an epicist. He was the author of La Jerusalem Liberata, which I think means, it's Italian epic, uh, the freeing of Jerusalem, right? It's mm -hmm. about the Crusades. And he says, as translated by Cavalcini, this is from 1594, his uh, discourses on the heroic poem, he says, quote, a heroic poem, i.e. an epic, is an imitation of noble action, great and perfect, narrated in the loftiest verse with the aim of giving profit through delight. Hmm. Okay. Compact, isn't it? Yes, very compact. He gets a lot in there. He does. What do you think with your knowledge of uh, reading and teaching epics? Is this on point, as they say? I think so. I mean, I'm definitely going to use this when okay. uh, the next time I teach Homer. Right. Although I, we're, we're talking about the metamorphoses tonight, right? Metamorphoses. Well, this is the contrast we're establishing All right, okay. for these vignettes. Okay. All right. So an imitation of noble action, mm -hmm. right? So you imitate what is noble in real life. It's something great and perfect. You have to narrate it in verse. So this is why, as you know from talking to students in your classes, when you ask them, what's an example of an American epic? What do they typically say? I don't know. I've never asked him that question. No? No. What do you talk about well, in your talk classes? talk about ancient epics. Okay. Yeah. They usually say, The Godfather, the okay. movies. Or, or Lord of the Rings. Exactly. Right. Okay. And I say, well, you know, those are good movies. At least the first two Godfathers are pretty good movies. Yes. Uh, the third one's not. No, we don't talk about it. Sorry, Sofia Coppola. That's right. But they're the wrong genre. It can't be epic if it's not poetry, if it's not verse. Right. That's the problem. So, that, I mean, this is interesting. I mean, this, I mean, uh, one thing I don't like about uh, Mr. Tasso's uh, mm -hmm. definition here is it's, it's very loose and subjective, except for the verse part. You right? don't think that... Uh, well, noble action, we'll go define noble. Okay. Great and perfect. Well, well, he does. He wrote an epic to try to define <laughs> it. What about this? The aim of giving profit through delight. So the purpose of writing an epic is to improve people by entertaining them. Yeah. 
You go for that? Yeah. I think, isn't, isn't that kind of the role of the classics writ large? Yes, I think so. Yes. Okay, right. how about this one? Okay. So this is from C.M. Baura, and this is much later. This is 1945 in his work uh, From Virgil to Milton. He says, an epic poem is by common consent a narrative of some length and deals with events which have a certain grandeur and importance and come from a life of action, especially violent action such as war. It gives a special pleasure because its events and persons enhance our belief in the worth of human achievement and in the dignity and nobility of man. Okay. Now, this builds on Tasso. It does. You can see. He's unpacking that first quote. Yes. Well, and he's extending it. I think by 1945, this 400-year period almost, uh, epic has changed his definition. Yeah. It's still got to be verse, but now it has to be long, right? Right, right. A, A narrative of some length, and it talks about the... The worth of human achievement, the dignity and nobility of man. In the common um, uh, presence of war. Correct. As an arena for, yes. for epic. Yes, some violent action, including war, or maybe mm-hmm. centrally war. So what's interesting about this is if we're going to hold up Ovid to these definitions, we're going to find this is an epic of a very different kind. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, right when you read that first quote, you know, a heroic poem is the imitation of noble action, great and perfect. I'm thinking, okay, we're talking about... Ovid tonight. Right. This doesn't really fit. No, it doesn't. Where does Ovid fit? Exactly. It's part of the fun and uh, and, and uh, difficulty. Yes. Yes. And I want to get right into that too in just a moment because, of course, we got to talk about the anxiety of influence. Hmm. Right. Uh, Ovid is writing in the looming shadow of Virgil. Right. So what are you going to do at this point? Mm-hmm. So it's all been done. That's right. So yeah. that's the setup. All right, so tonight we're tackling two vignettes, right? Correct. So the Metamorphoses, Ovid's Metamorphoses, is a massive work, mm-hmm. right? And so there's no way we can cover it all uh, in 30 episodes. Right. right, it's 15 books. Right, so we're picking and choosing tonight. Yes. And we're taking a couple of, uh, two of my favorites, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Apollo-Daphne encounter and the kind of the tragedy that uh, takes place between Acteon and Diana. Correct. Yep. But first got to talk about, more broadly, the metamorphosis itself. Exactly. Okay. So we want to ask the question, what is the metamorphosis? Mm-hmm. So it's an epic, right? Lofty verse, 15 books. Now, where did he get the inspiration for this length? Well, nobody really knows, except that uh, Ennius, one of the archaic Latin poets, may have written his Annales at 15 books or maybe 18, mm. right? They were quite long. So Virgil seems to be perhaps a little bit of an outlier with the 12 books. Uh, Virgil's an outlier. Yes. Okay. The okay. Virgil's Aeneid with only 12 books, mm. which he, you know, himself says were unfinished. Yeah. Right? Uh, he may be somewhat the outlier, and maybe a longer treatment, more like Ovid's, is you know, more normal, more standard. That's interesting. You know, I always took the kind of the 12 of Virgil to be a, a you know, kind of a mathematical homage to Homer. Clearly, for right? sure, for sure. Right. But because it's unfinished, he, Who knows? You know, exactly. Right, right, He right. gave instructions for its destruction. Right. Right, which, as we both know, um, Augustus overlooked, vetoed. Yes. Good enough for me. Yes. Publish it. Yes. <laughs> right, So right. what is the Metamorphoses? Well, it's inspired by Hesiod, mm-hmm. whom, whom we've covered, right? I think it was uh, Working for a Living and... Uh, oh, your the, title the, the Agony and the Ecstasy The Agony and the Ecstasy That was one of yours, man I don't think I so think it was but... Go back and listen to those okay. uh, Please, please <laughs> Please listen to them <laughs> uh, So, inspired by Hesiod Unusual invocation, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a specific invocation of the muses But invocation of the gods generally And he's actually making fun, as we'll see, of the gods mm. When he invokes them Yeah So, in, in terms of like the larger themes we're right. about, Like with the Iliad the, the themes of rage, right? The, the themes of of, of death, mm-hmm. uh, of immortality, honor. Does maybe 
does maybe friendship trump those a little bit because of Achilles going back to war when Patroclus dies? Right, exactly. But with the Metamorphoses, I mean, the, the title suggests this is loosely about change. Change, yeah. yeah. Which I think is one of Ovid's many brilliant moves. If you don't like the theme of the poem, don't worry. It's going to change in just a minute. Right. You're tired of this story? Don't worry. I have 249 additional ones. Yeah, exactly. Stick around. Exactly. So, I mean, my my, sen- my sense of Ovid has always been is that he's having fun with the whole thing. Definitely. So, or he's, 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 he's poking at it. Mm-hmm. Right? So, uh, how seriously can we can we take him? Right. Um I mean, I think he veers in his seriousness. He does. I mean, even between the two vignettes we're talking about tonight, there's a, there's a, um, these hard left and right turns. Definitely. Yeah. And there are moments. We're not going to look at Daedalus and Icarus, but there are moments filled with real pathos. Sure. Where you think that uh, Ovid understands something deep about the human condition and is trying to convey that to us, but he can't resist a joke. Right. <laughs> no matter what, he's going to go for the punchline mm-hmm. pretty much every time. And that's fitting with what other things we know about about Definitely. that he wrote, right? Yes, he seems to have much more of kind of the comic in him than Virgil. Ever definitely, did. definitely. Yeah. yeah, you can go back and listen to the the listeners going to get tired of this, right? <laughs> Constant stuff. <laughs> right. But who cares? Yeah. Avid for Ovid. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so unusual theme, unusual chronology, because he starts uh, with the very beginning of the world, unlike pretty much any other epic. And takes it right down to his own time. Mm-hmm. And 250 mythological episodes crammed into these 15 books. Right. Right. All right. Let's let's take it away. All right. Jeff, how about you read the opening lines for us? Uh, lines one through four. I would love to. In no affair danimus mutatis dicere formas, corpora di coiptis nam vos mutastis et ilas, anspiratame is prima qua borigine mundi, Ad mea perpetuum deducita tempora carmen. Very nice, very nice. And uh, I've prepared a little bit of a translation. Oh, really? Yes, I did. Did you you bang this out today? Uh, A couple days ago. Oh, excellent. And uh, here goes. If you don't like it, listener, um, what what am I going to say? Too bad? Too bad. All right. My mind intends the veil to rend and speak of forms discarded. You gods attend, the body's changed, for you first got it started. You changed yourselves, my song inspire, and from the world's first founding to my own time, my song sublime, extend in rhythmic pounding. Very nice. Thanks. You know, I think I think Ovid would appreciate that. Would he like that? But what I like about it is, of course, the um, the Latin is the dactyly hexameter, yeah. which puts us in the mind of Homer and Virgil. Right. It's heavy. It's 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 grand. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. But I, your translation, there's a lightness to it. I hope so. Right. And there's so you, a little bit of internal rhyme. Yes, exactly. No, that's great. There's some there's some casualness about it. Right. So, how, how is the um, thanks for the compliment? Yeah. How is it organized? Right. How are the fifteen books organized? So it's not like Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid mm-hmm. with a clear story arc, mm-hmm. but it's arranged in different ways. Right. So we have. I mean, it's arranged around um, geography. Mm-hmm. Scholars talk about kind of this kind of brackets of themes that right. can repeat themselves. Or touch. I'm, I'm not so sure how much I buy that. Really. But um, themes and repeated themes, parallel themes. So geography would be an example. Ovid's telling a story of some character, and then he says. Another person who lived in that mm-hmm. particular region and had an interesting story is... Yeah. So it's kind of this very loose connection. Correct. Right. But that's what's kind of fun and surprising about it. But um, And I think he's almost making fun of himself. What's the connection between these stories? Well, they lived in the same place. Isn't that good enough? Right. Right. So that's why I often think kind of these, like the hunt for unity in right. Ovid's metaphors is, is a fool's game. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Then you've got parallel themes. 
right? So, you know, the deadly wish motif of a Phython who wants to drive his father's chariot, right? Midas. Midas, who, yeah. who wants to be uh, rich at all costs. So sometimes you have stories with uh, similar connections like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are stories of contrast. Uh, what else do we have? I mean, lots of, uh, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, mm -hmm. another way of, of transitioning to the story. Well, this guy's son did this, mm -hmm. right? And we'll see that actually in um, Actaeon and Diana, because he's going to talk about Cadmus's grandson, Actaeon, Actaeon yeah. was the first guy to cause him grief. Mm. And uh, sometimes it's similarities and change as well. Lots of transforming of, of uh, human into something uh, from nature. Correct. Right. Yeah. How you became a tree, how a tree became a person, how a person became a bird, and then the bird became a fish. And right. I don't know if there's any bird to fish, but there's constant transformation like this. Right. Metamorphoses. Exactly. Yeah. So book one, what do we have? Well, book one, uh, where our first vignette actually is placed, um, Apollo and Daphne, it begins where you might expect it to begin, at the beginning, right? At the beginning of, of Oh, things. wait, 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 wait what? a minute. It begins where we might expect it to begin at the beginning? Yeah, you like that? <laughs> Not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning of time. Okay. Right. So uh, creation of the world, creation of, of human beings, um, very Hesiod-y, right? Yep. We got the uh, the war between the, the, the generations of, of early beings. Right. The deities. gigantomachy. Yes. Right. The gigantomony and the titanomachy. I love those both. Ovid uh, leaves out one of the ages of man that... Uh, Hesiod has. He drops the heroic age? Heroic, right, yeah. which is sandwiched between, I think... Bronze and iron. Between bronze and iron, mm -hmm. right. In Hesiod, uh, Ovid reduces it, makes it a little simpler, just gold, silver, bronze, iron. But it's it's also bleaker. It is bleaker. It, in Hesiod, who is very bleak, right. at least with the heroic age, there's like this blip on the, on the graph where, oh, things got better for a while, but then... Boom. Right. Drop. Which is some uh, reason to think it's maybe loosely historical or believed to be historical, because why would you, I mean, believed by Hesiod, why would you have a sudden uptick in this general moral decline if it didn't reflect something that happened? I agree. Yeah. So that's quite interesting to me. So we got the Gigantomachy, the Ages of Man. Then the first story is uh, Lycaon, right? The man transformed into a wolf. Mm -hmm. Then the flood with Deucalion and Pyrrha. Yes. The uh, so-called uh, Greek Noah. Yes. Uh, although Deucalion, let's see, Pyrrha is his um, his first cousin, I believe. Is that, I, I don't remember Yeah, I that. think Deucalion is the son of Prometheus, and Pyrrha is the daughter of Epimetheus. Okay, yeah. If, if I'm remembering Big correctly. Cousins, yep. And then immediately after that, boom. Apollo and Daphne. Apollo and Daphne. Now, I can just, at a glance at the, kind of the list of these vignettes, if you you're thinking you don't, about... You don't like vignette? No, I like vignette. Did, okay. I, did I say it like I sounded... You did kind okay. of. Okay, right. I put the I in irascible. <laughs> Indeed, you did. All right. But if you look at this, okay, okay, creation, creation of man, war between the, the giants and the gods, ages of man, it's all very predictable. Right. And then, okay, you have the flood. I mean, that's a, you know an early, you mm -hmm. know, it's in line with the creation stories, right? right? Then what's Apollo and Daphne doing here? It's love. It, it seems to, okay, it's chronologically, why is that next? Because that's what I'm asking. I don't really know. Right. Here, the chronology is fast and loose. Mm -hmm. it, it falls apart really quickly. Yes, it does. Right. But it's, it's a general uh, pastiche, right? He's painting with really broad brush strokes. We'll, right. st we'll start with creation. We'll take it right down to my own day. He says, uh, Ad mea tempora, line four, book one, like you read so nicely. But the chronology falls apart. Is it all right if I read a little bit of the Latin here, Jeff? Please do. Okay, so book one, line 452. Primus amor foi bi daphne pe ne iaquem non. Force ignara dedit sed saiwa cupidinus irdra. Delius hunc nu per victa serpenta superbus, 
Widerataad ducto flec tentem cornua nervo, quid quetebi la skiwa puer cum fortibus armis? Very nice. Thanks. Nice. I love this bit here. La skiwa puer. La skiwa right? puer. He's right. talking to Cupid. Right. You licentious little whatever it is. <laughs> scamp. I don't know. Yeah. What, is, uh, what does Stanley Lombardo he say? He says, you little imp. You little imp. Yes. Nice. Isn't that nice? For these two vocatives, la skiwa puer. Can you read us his translation? Yes. So um, Lombardo translates, Apollo's first love was Daphne, Peneus' daughter. Not by blind chance, but because Cupid was angry. Flush with his victory over Python, the Delian god saw him stringing and flexing his bow and said, What do you think you're doing, you little imp, with a man's weapons? That archery set belongs on my shoulders. Hmm. So we got some conflict now. We do. We got a little backstory. We got Apollo's backstory. Uh, and then we got a little bit of conflict between these half-brothers, right? Yes. And these two kind of rival archers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So Apollo's first love. So there's your connection. Okay. Don't you want to know about Apollo's first love? If you look back just a minute, right, up to the lines before where this starts, mm-hmm. we get the story of the Python. Right? Yes. So this is the loose connection uh, to read the Lombardo. There was no laurel yet, and Apollo wreathed his brow and the gorgeous locks of his hair with a garland from whatever species he of tree. He was just grabbing leaves. That's terrible. <laughs> Have you ever done something like that? Just walking along and, you know, <clears throat> recent victory of some sort. I need to garland. And just to, it's I, time to garland. It's garland, garland, right. Yeah. But I don't just go to any tree willy-nilly. You know? No? I've got my favorites. Okay. I like, I like a good oak. You're walking along and you, oh, it's time to garland. <laughs> it's time to garland. All I can see is, um, I don't know, ash or elm or... Pine. Pine. Yeah, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a rough garland. It right is. There. <laughs> so Apollo needs something more specific here. Mm-hmm. Right. And his first love was Daphne, right. Peneus's daughter. Now, who is Peneus? You, you got me. River God. Okay, that's this, right. This is what's going to happen. Uh, some of the famous, famous paintings always show uh, Peneus, right? One of the, river, um, the rivers in Arcadia. Right? Is that right? Somewhere in the Peloponnese. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's uh, always depicted as a muscular man with a heroic torso and a flowing beard. A heroic torso? You don't know about the heroic torso? <laughs> it's like he's ripped. 1% body fat. Okay. You're, you're standard podcast host. <laughs> and he's, he's clutching a large uh, earthen vessel, right? Uh-huh. And the earthen vessel that he's clutching is an indicator in the iconography that he is a river god. So he's a water bear. He's an Aquarius. Is that? Exactly. Okay, I got gotcha. yep. So heroic torso, flowing beard, right. water jug. He's a river god. All right. So Daphne is Peneus' daughter, and Apollo falls in love with her, but it's not by blind chance. It's because of this conflict with Cupid. Yeah, Cupid's angry. Right. Now here, but I think, you know, the, the twist is, is that the, I think this vignette is not about love at all. What I mean, is it about? I mean, that's not about love in kind of the conventional modern sense, right? But I think that's kind of what I think I was playing with that. We think of Cupid today as, you know, the cutesy baby on the Valentine cards, right? He, yeah. he shoots you with his little puppy love romantic arrows. But this is something much darker and much more dangerous. Definitely. Right? So this is not love, I would say. This is um, this is lust. Yes. Well, the, the Greek form, right, eros, right. is one of the primordial divinities by the time of the Renaissance, Cupid has been, as we've talked about before, mm-hmm. uh, completely domesticated. So he's right. a, a pudgy little putty. Right. And, right? and multiplied. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of them, li- the little putty fly- flitting about, right? <laughs> Littering the landscape. Yes. Yeah. You need a snow shovel or a broom or something to <laughs> get these things out, of, here. out of the way. <laughs> right. I've got to garlands. Like they're buzzing like gnats. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But that's not how it is here yet. You still have a little bit of this agonistic element. The mm-hmm. two brothers are upset. So... 
The Delian god saw, it says, uh, Cupid stringing and flexing his bow and said, what do you think you're doing, you little imp? Right. With a man's weapon. So, I mean, so already, I mean, in the language here, it seems that, you know, Cupid has been infantilized a little bit, mm-hmm. right? He's not the, the strapping, heroic torso figure we see like in the Greek vases where he's right. kind of this, this, um, this young man. Mm-hmm. He's already, I mean, Apollo comes along and says, oh, what's this little brat doing? Exactly. Like playing with, with, doesn't like with a man's toys. Correct. Right? Doesn't, doesn't like him at all. What's nope. he doing down in the man cave? Yeah. With, with my stuff. With my stuff. He grabbed the remote, really, is what's happening. <laughs> Sorry, hand that over, kid. Mm-hmm. Right. But then in the story, we, we, uh, Cupid says, oh, I'll show you really who's boss. Mm-hmm. The power of love trumps everything. So he says, against wild beasts, I can wound my enemies. And just now I laid low in a shower of arrows, swollen python, and left his noxious belly spread out over acres. You should be satisfied with using your torch to inflame people with love and stop laying claim to glory that is mine. Well, that's also uh, an artistic motif you see a lot in particularly kind of late Roman art is Cupid, not only with the bow and arrow, but with the torch. Yes. Well, and what we have here is the adunaton, right? The... The things not the way they're supposed to be. The mm. shook up world that we saw back when we talked about Amores One. Are you are you, are you referencing another uh, episode we did? Yes. Okay. Okay. Once, okay. Well, yeah. it's it's germane. It is germane. It's germane to this vignetti. It's <laughs> it's germane to this vignetti. I challenge anyone on the germaneness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. So well, as I was saying, yes, please. Yeah. In Amores One, Ovid's complaining, Cupid. You know, stay in your lane, mm-hmm. as they say. We can't have things going uh, awry. And Apollo is really reinforcing the same idea. Exactly. I'm the god of the bow. You you take care of your little romances. Let me do the important and dangerous things. All right, and he's just coming off a huge feat of archery, right? A huge victory. So, I, I killed this uh, acres. Right. That's how big this is. Look, look, look what I did. Right. right? Saying, like, what do you think you're doing? So what's one key victory in your life, Winkle? Let's think. Let's see Something here. you're especially garlanded over. Let's see. I once, I once, uh, I, I was a kind of homecoming guy. You were, yes. Oh. And I, I, you, everyone had to give a speech, so I did mine in rap form. And was it funny? Oh, it was, it was, it was funny, and okay. it, and it, it was very well received. Oh, that's wonderful. It, it, I mean, to, probably to watch it today or listen to it, it would be it, painful, painful, <laughs> and huge cringe. But at the moment. It was, it was. You uh, were king. I was king. King of the world. It was great. Yeah. So after that, if someone came along, you know, and tried to cut in on your territory. Oh, and they did. You, I'm sure you were quite upset. <laughs> well, I didn't like it at all. Of course. Right, right, right. right. So that's, that's what we have here. Exactly. Right? Okay. We got Cupid honing in on Apollo's domain. You just made it real for me. I'm feeling it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the son of Venus replied, you got your Cupid voice? I don't have a. I don't get a good Cupid voice. Okay, no, no. could you just read it in the Jeff voice? Sure, sure, right. Phoebus, your arrows may hit everything else, but mine will hit you. As much as as animals are inferior to gods, so is my glory superior to yours. Whoa, right. just, that's a boast. He threw it down. Yeah, the yep. gauntlet. You're saying there is. Yeah, exactly. The glove, something like that. He challenged. Mm-hmm. So the distance between animals and gods is the distance between my glory and yours. Look right now. That's usually the kind of of, of if it, this is the kind of boast if it came from an arachne or a niobe. You're saying a mortal. A mortal. Mm-hmm. They're, they're finished. Absolutely. Right. Is Cupid finished? He's not finished. No, he's got 15 more books to rampage through. <laughs> that's right. Because right. as we'll see when we get near the end, although the ostensible theme is a spoiler alert, right? Uh, please, listener, wait till the end of the episode because you don't want to miss the ads. Mm-hmm. The ostensible theme is transformation. The real theme is love mm-hmm. in various kinds. Yes. Yes, indeed. Dave, uh, read us some more from the story, would you? Yes. So here we have um, 
Cupid's response, or I mean, actually, what he does next. He spoke, and beating his wings with a vengeance, landed on the shady peak of Parnassus. He stood there and drew from his quiver two different arrows, one that dispels love and one that impels it. The latter is golden with a sharp glistening point, the former blunt with a shaft made of lead. And if I may just digress, uh, imagine if you had two different kinds of deodorant. <laughs> right? Okay. It's kind of what it is. It's odorant yes. and deodorant. deodorant. <laughs> you got Old Spice and what? Old Spice is the odorant. That's the odorant? <laughs> yes. That's not the deodorant? No, as much as it claims to be. Oh, it's okay. A, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the odorant. Then. You got two things. One one compels love and one dispels love. Right, okay. All yep. right. The former blunt with a shaft made of lead. The god struck the nymph, that would be Daphne, with arrow number two and feathered the first deep into Apollo's marrow. That's a good translation. That is. That's great. Nice job, Stan. Mm-hmm. All right, what? so Daphne's got, uh-huh. she's... Um, Daphne she, has the... The lead arrow. The deodorant. The deodorant. Mm-hmm. And it's a Apollo who's um, lathered up with degree. I'm getting right, lost here. Right guard. Axe. <laughs> right. He's the body spray. I don't know. But whatever it is, now Daphne is to him irresistible, mm-hmm. right? Chanel number five. Yes. And... Um, Apollo is to her repulsive. Yeah. So they begin a foot race. Right, right. So and then and Cupid just stands back and says, Watch what happens. Exactly. You yeah. want to read some more of that there? Yes. So one now loved, the other fled love's very name. Delighting in the deep woods, wearing the skins of animals she caught, modeling herself on the Virgin Diana. Her hair tussled her tussled hair tied back. She had many suitors but could not endure men. Now hold on a minute. Yep. We have a lapse here of time, don't we? Ovid's playing with the time because He's describing things that she had many suitors but could not endure men. She took up the guise of the Virgin Diana, tousled her hair, tied mm-hmm. back and so forth. He's cramming in a little bit of backstory. Right, but with no apology for how it fits. It's just all in real time, I guess. I guess so. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So she turned them away and roamed the pathless woods without a thought of hymen or, or amor or marriage. Her father often said, you owe me a son-in-law, girl. Often observed, you owe me grandchildren, my daughter. But she hated the wedding torch like sin itself, and her beautiful face would blush with shame as she hung from his neck with coaxing arms. And we'll, we'll get on to the rest. Yeah. So it seems like, did she really need the lead arrow? It seems like she was kind of in that frame of mind anyway. I think that this is saying this is the result of the lead arrow. But all of this stuff has to have taken It's place. telescoped. No, that was my point. My point. One now loved, the other fled's lo- fled love's very name. So this was the result, and, and Ovid is just skipping over any kind of um, accounting for the chronology. Okay. He's going he's gonna to skip ahead and see uh, the encounter between Apollo and Daphne takes place after these results of the leaden arrow have worked their way on Daphne. Okay. That's, I mean, that's not the way I've, I've ever read it. Really? Yeah, I just let this kind of as, I mean, this is as a, kind of a nature nymph. She's like Diana. She doesn't. She, you know, she her she protects her virginity, hmm. um, holds it very sacredly, and it's just the lead arrow that kind of puts it over the top. That's I don't think so. No, because I think the chronology shows, and the, the Latin shows, one now loved, the other fled love's very name. That's how I'm taking it. And, okay. And Ovid just skips over the time problem. All right. He tells the story all in one frame. Right? All right. Uh, much like some of the. Now I could be wrong, but I'm going to just extend the argument a little bit. 
in uh, the way that some of these Renaissance paintings deal with the story. You have all of the activity in one frame. Right. You've got Peneus there with his earthen jar. You've got uh, Apollo racing. You have Daphne racing, but she's caught in mid-stride turning into the laurel tree. Yeah. It's all at once. Right. With yeah. Cupid over at the at the corner line. So this is like a this is a this is like a painting. Right? I think so. Okay. Right. It's a vignetti. I like it. I like it. Okay. So what happens next? Uh, well, Apollo loves her at sight and desires to wed her. What he desires, he hopes for. But here, his oracular powers desert him. Right? He's the god of prophecy. Mm-hmm. A light stubble blazes in a har- as light stubble blazes in a harvested field, or as a hedge catches fire from embers a traveler has let get too close or has forgotten at daybreak, so too the god went up in flames and all his heart burned and fed his impossible passion with hope. So this, of course, is another very common Ovidian theme. That is how a person is overcome with passion and they lose all self-control. Yeah. I don't I don't see this as, as friendly at all, though. No. Um, my sense is that if Apollo catches her, the clear suggestion is not he's going to whisk her away to a happy marriage. Oh, no. There's no, going to be a, a violent attack. Absolutely. Okay. This is one of many violent attacks. And uh, when I teach this, you know, many of these episodes are not easy to teach. Yeah. Because there's a definite hint of some very strong violence here. But Ovid using the word, you know, amor over mm-hmm. and over again, it's, again, it's, he seems to be kind of teasing us. I mean, amor does not have the weight that, like, an eros does. Correct. Right? Maybe the better translation would be just something like passion. Passion, yeah. Because love for us, you know, after the advent of Christianity has connotations of gentleness and right. kindness and so forth. I'm not sure it had that really for the Romans That's always. a very good point. Yeah. <clears throat> so he sees the hair that flows all across her neck and wonders, what if it were combed? Sees her eyes flash like stars, sees her mouth, which merely to see is hardly enough. He praises her fingers, her hands, her arms, which for the most part are bare. And what is hidden, he imagines, is better. So here we have some foreshadowing, mm-hmm. right? Or forebranching, you might say, because these things are going to become... You know, her limbs are going to become the limbs of a tree right. and so forth. Exactly. Exactly right. So he's, do, he's doing all this while he's running? He says, Apollo? Apollo? He's running and he's kind of, he's, he's praising you limbs. You can't notice and, things when you're huffing along? Well, I guess, I, guess, I mean, he's a, he's a god, so he can, he's got, a, um, he's got much better endurance than... I would hope so. Right. He's got Apollonian strength. So he can, so. And he can multitask, I suppose. I would imagine. Yeah. All right. So her flight is faster than if she were wind, and she does not pause to hear him calling her back. Nymphopenius, I beg you, stop. I am not pursuing you as an enemy. Please, nymph, stop. This is how a lamb runs away from a wolf, a deer from a lion, a trembling dove from an eagle, each from her enemy, but love makes me pursue you. But of course, I think this is, she's exactly like a lamb running away from a wolf. She's right to flee. Yes. Her fear is founded. Yep. Ah, I am afraid you will fall, he says, afraid that brambles will scratch your shins and that I, oh so wretched, will be the cause of your pain. This is rough terrain you are running through. Run a little slower, please, and I'll slow down too. Or stop and ask who your lover is. No hillbilly or shepherd. I don't mind the herds here like some shaggy oaf. You do not know my rash one. You just don't know who you are running from, and that's why you run. So he's exactly like Pepe Le Pew. And yes. that cat yes. always gets the white stripe on her back when she goes under the fence. Right, and he thinks it's, she's a skunk. Mm-hmm. Another skunk, right. And like Pepe Le Pew, he won't shut up. No, he won't. He will not shut up. Right. Yeah, he doesn't have the bad faux French accent. <laughs> no. But you know that... that that cartoon is totally canceled. 
What? what? Uh, to a, a kind of aggressive? aggressive yeah. yeah. Okay. But, I mean, one of the ways that you learn that that is wrong, I suppose, here's a little apologia for Pepe Le Pew, you <laughs> learn that that kind of behavior is wrong is by watching it. Right. It's, it does not, uh, it's, it's, it's absurd and ridiculous not Correct. to be celebrated. Right? No. Right, right. So he, I mean, so uh, Apollo goes on. Um, now he's kind of, you know, he's laying down his credentials. Delphi is mine. I am Lord of Claros and Tenedos and the realm of pa- Patara. Jove is my father. What shall be, what is now, and what has been are all revealed by me. So he's saying, I'm an oracle god. I, yeah, I, I know it all. I know it all. All these places kind of bend their knee to me. It is through me that songs are played in tune on the lyre. My arrows are sure, but one arrow more sure has wounded my heart that once was carefree. I invented medicine. I am called the healer throughout the world. The potency of herbs is my domain, but oh, love cannot be cured by herbs, and the arts that benefit all are of no use to their lord. <laughs> so who's winning in this contest? It's not Apollo, and uh, it's really not Daphne. It's uh, it's Cupid. Yes. Cupid is winning. He's proven. I hit you with the golden arrow. You're done. Right. You burn with passion. You can't avoid it. I imagine just him sitting up, like up on a, higher up on the mountain on a rock and just kind of in laughing. Yeah, maybe with some binoculars. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe yeah. some snacks. He would have said more. You think Pepe Le Pew is uh, loquacious. He would have said more, but the Panaid nymph was running scared and left his words unfinished. She was still a lovely sight. And now he goes into a description, right? That, you know, you might find a little bit tasteless. Ovid is never one to spare our senses, right? Mm-hmm. He's going to describe this uh, beautiful woman in flight and in total panic, and yet uh, lovely still, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then finally we get right up to the climax, right? Help me, Father, she says. She saw the waters of Peneus, she cried. Help me, Father, if your streams have divine power, destroy this too pleasing beauty of mine by transforming me. She had just finished her prayer when a heavy numbness invaded her body and a sheath of bark enclosed her soft breast. Her hair turned into fluttering leaves, her arms into branches, her feet, once so swift, became mired in roots, and her face was lost in the canopy. Only her beauty's sheen remained. So she's transformed into, into a tree. Yeah, the laurel, the tree, laurel tree, sacred so, to Apollo. Right, and Daphne in Greek mm-hmm. means laurel. Correct. Right. And so, is this salvation? One of the points I like to make to most of my students, well, to my students when I teach this is when they pray for transformation and the gods answer, I mean, here it's her own father, they're often in a worse predicament or at least a predicament that isn't to us noticeably better. So what is she saved from? She's saved from Apollo's violent passion. Mm -hmm. That's obviously a good thing, but she's then transformed into a tree that is immobile. Right. And her entire nature has changed. Right. So there's really no happiness about the transformation she's not saved she's changed into something entirely different right and this is actually fairly typical um so in the last episode we talked about the hero's journey in feminine heroine journeys uh there's a this this motif this daphne motif shows up a lot where the feminine heroine often does not return Mm. and she often becomes kind of part of nature so a famous kind of more more contemporary one later example is like the little mermaid Okay. So, you know, the Disney cartoon, she goes off to marry the prince and she becomes a human. But in the original Grimm's uh, fairy tale version... So that, that story, excuse me if I may... Yes. That's not original to Disney? It is not. Oh. No, it's a it's a, it's an old folktale. I didn't know that. And in the original version, she doesn't marry the prince. She is turned into sea foam oh. and is kind of blown away. She becomes part of the sea. It's, it's, the, it's the same thing. Mm. So the transformation of the heroine into something in nature where she's more or less lost forever. Mm. Yeah. Eurydice is what I would think of too. Yeah, of course. She's lost into the underworld. Exactly. She's gone. That same that same camp. Yep. Hmm. 
So uh, Apollo, he comes upon her. Of course, you know, they're too late in in, in his uh, in his view. And Ovid says, Apollo still loved her, and pressing his hand against her trunk, he felt her heart quivering under the new bark. He embraced her limbs with his own arms, and he kissed the wood. But even the wood shrank from his kiss. So even as a tree, ah. she's like, stay away, dude. Yeah, odorant. Odorant, yeah. The god said to her, since you can't be my bride, you will be my tree. My hair will be wreathed with you, Laurel, and you will crown my quiver and lyre. You will accompany the Roman generals when joyful voices ring out their triumphs. Come on, Ovid. <laughs> and their long parades wind beneath the Capitol. You will ornament Augustus's doorposts. Come on, no, Ovid. Some sycophantic, A faithful yeah. guardian standing watch over the oak leaves between them. And just as my head with its unshorn hair is forever young, you will always wear beautiful undying leaves. So he, he uh, calls her beautiful by comparing her to his own uh, his own coiffure. Yeah, a little bit of uh, ego there. <laughs> Just a little. Yeah. Apollo was done. The laurel bowed her new branches and seemed to nod her leafy crown in assent. She says, okay. So that's the story. There it is. And uh, I know you've been to the Borghese Galleria. I have. One of the most beautiful places in the world. Per square meter, the best collection of art, uh, par none. Yes. And the famous Bernini. Yes, exactly. I, I knew exactly where you're going with this. Yeah. But in my mind, perhaps the greatest sculpture ever sculpted. Yes, it's yeah. really incredible. Yeah, uh, needs to be seen in person to be mm -hmm. truly believed. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll leave the story right there. Not add too much more interpretation. No, well, we encourage the listener to to seek out the translation and read it for yourself. Yes, we're kind of up against the break here. We've gone a little bit long. A lot to cover. But we have a special kind of offer. We do? Yes. The publisher, Hackett, has generously sent us multiple copies of the two different translations That's right. of the Metamorphoses, and we're going to be giving away some copies. Excellent. So stay tuned. Yes, and uh, pay attention to the social media, Instagram and Facebook in particular, so you can get some free copies from Hackett. This episode of Ad Nauseam brought to you by Hackett Publishing. For the last 40 plus years, Hackett Publishing has been bringing high quality, erudite, affordable translations of many, many classical works, as well as works from many other disciplines in the humanities. Um, I love Hackett. I have lots of Hackett volumes on my own shelves. I use them all the time in my own uh, in my classroom. Uh, great artwork. I can't say enough about Hackett Publishing. Dave, what do you think? Well, Jeff, I think Hackett puts out some amazing volumes. They are attractive. They're well-organized. They just sent us, for future episodes, uh, some of their Blitz collection of Shakespeare. Oh, goodness, yes. So you got the yeah. Coriolanus. You got those, right? I did, yes. Yeah, you got the Coriolanus, the Antony and Cleopatra, and uh, the Julius Caesar, right? Beautiful volumes. High-quality scholarship. And uh, let's not forget that Hackett is really affordable. That's one of the, the my favorite things about them. Absolutely. Right? So, so uh, accessible to everybody. Right. Yeah. So listeners, to take advantage of uh, what we're offering here, go to hackettpublishing.com, find the books you want, put them in a little grocery basket, and type in the coupon code AN2021, and you will get 20% off whatever you uh, purchase plus free shipping. That's right. 20% and free shipping. So not not only, if I may say, mm -hmm. Dr. Winkle, may. Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle, Thank you. not only will the listener be getting some great volumes, but they will be supporting this program, right? They'll be supporting uh, the expansion, the embiggening of classics, you know, around the world. That's and right. if this is something you want to be a part of, we would so much appreciate you supporting our sponsor. Well said. So check it out. 
This episode of Audazim also brought to you by the Moss Method. Dave, tell us about the Moss Method. Well, I wanted to solve a problem. You did? Uh, yes, I'm a problem solver. Mm. I know a lot of people who want to learn Greek because they want to read the New Testament. That's a very popular one. Maybe they want to read Plato, Herodotus, Homer, Demosthenes. Uh, maybe they've studied a little bit of Greek by themselves uh, or under another teacher, but they don't really have any confidence. So what? So how are you solving this problem? Well, I'm solving the problem because I took a public domain text from the 19th century. You can look it up on your own. Mm-hmm. Charles Melville Moss, a first Greek reader. And I developed a program where you have 40 video lessons where I'm explaining word by word, line by line, sentence by sentence, each and every one of these riveting stories that Moss put together. That sounds great. Yeah. And it's got homework assignments. You've got quizzes. So it's a standard Greek course, but it's both less expensive and more thorough than pretty much anything you can get anywhere. I'm really confident about that. It's self-paced, it's expert and accessible, and I'm helping you all the way through. So there's a lot of hand-holding. And it's you yourself, it's not some flunky. No flacky, right? it's me directly. So you sign up for the course, go to mossmethod.com, check it out, sign up, you get a personalized email from me. I'm holding your hand all the way through. There's really no reason that you can't become quite confident and accomplished in this beautiful language. Excellent. So how would somebody who's interested go about doing this? Well, they could be a young person like a homeschooler. They could be an older person like someone in seminary or grad school. They could be an octogenarian. I have a lot of people in there, 50s, 60s, 70s, studying Greek with me. Yeah. They go to mossmethod.com, check out the, the sample lessons, take a look at the description, see if it's for you. We want to get you into the right program. And then uh, purchase the course, and we'll get going on uh, learning Greek together. Sounds great. This episode is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Mark Helwig and his crack team in Portland, Oregon, have solved all of your aesthetic and brew-based problems. No more ugliness, no more bad coffee. No, it's true. Um, my coffee drinking life has changed since I got their Ratio 6 machine. Revolutionized, metamorphosized. Yes, exactly. Uh, every morning, my stainless steel 6 um, brews up the perfect cup of coffee. I love it. My wife loves it. It's a work of art. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Yes, I have the eight, but I was at a friend's house today who has the six, loyal Mm -hmm. listener. Uh, He knows who he is, and he knows who his wife is, and his wife knows who she is, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) And I thought, oh, here's my chance, because Winkle's been talking about this carafe. I want to see the carafe of the six and see how it measures up. And uh, a little different style than the eight, but equally beautiful. And just like you said, you could hold plutonium in that thing. Did you did you, uh, did you you gauge its heft? I did. I hefted it. It's, it am- was, it's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. And uh, such a lovely machine. So it's got a brew stage, yes. it's got a bloom stage, and then... Boom, ready. That's right, ready to go. I think it's bloom and then the brew, right? Did, you, I think Did you, I switch I think them? you flip the bloom, bloom and the brew. There's a bloom with a brew. You don't, want to, you don't want to brew before you bloom. No, first you bloom and you off-gas. Yes. You get rid of the brackish tang and the scorch pad. Yep. Then you move on to the brew. That's where the water comes streaming down through the Fibonacci head. We got this down pat, don't we? It was do. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's ready. It's ready. Yep. You drink it. Yep. And... Um, how can our listeners benefit? Well, that's but an important question, it is, isn't it? Exactly. Okay, so go to Ratio Coffee, R A T I O Coffee.com. Mm-hmm. Check out the Ratio 6 or the 8. Mm-hmm. Either of them you can get with a coupon code that we have for you, A N C O, yes. Ad Nauseum Coffee, A N C O, and get 15% off. It's a great deal. You won't regret it. Check it out.
All right, Jeff, as we get back into it, we move on to the second vignette, and that is Diana and Actian. That's right. So um, before we get into the story, let's Ovid sets this up with a little um, a genealogy, right? Correct. So where does Actian, who is he, where does he come from? So Actian is the son of Atanawi and Aristias. Now, Aristias, in the complicated way of Greek myth, is himself the son of Apollo, which means that Actian has divinity on both sides. Yes. He's the grandson of a man named Cadmus. Now, Cadmus is the brother of Europa, who is the woman who was stolen from Phoenicia by Zeus in the shape of a bull. Right. Uh, listeners, you following all this? <laughs> so <laughs> Cadmus goes off to Greece to find his kidnapped sister, does not succeed, but he founds the city of Thebes. Right. He gets farther than uh, his, his brothers give up Correct. earlier, but he's the one who makes it all the way to Greece. Yes. yes. And Cadmus, Herodotus tells us, is the one who brought the Greek, well, the Phoenician letters to the Greeks. He's right. a, a cult hero, mm-hmm. right? So then he's going to kill a dragon at the site of Thebes, where he finds a sacred cow, kills a dragon, sows the seeds, the teeth, excuse me, into the soil. They spring up and become the Spartans. Right. They, the, uh, the, the sown men who become the ancestors of, of Thebes. That's right. Yes. The Spartoi. Yeah. And everything looks fine. Of course, Cadmus is going to have a really miserable life hereafter in many, many ways. And the first source of misery is his grandson, Actian. Right. And then what also hangs over this, of course, is that Cadmus undergoes his own transformation. He's turned into a snake. That's oh, right. That's we learned that in uh, Euripides Bacchae. That's right. Other sources. Yes. Mm-hmm. So unlike the story of Apollo and Daphne, where a god is pursuing a mortal woman, here we have this mortal man, Actian, or he's partly mortal, right? Mm-hmm. Stumbling upon a goddess in the middle of the forest and facing a really cruel punishment. Yeah, this is one of those stories that's always disturbed me. Just the uh, just the injustice uh, of it all. I mean, certainly from a, a modern, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian perspective, but even from an ancient perspective, you know, Ava suggests that you know this is this is deeply unjust. Mm-hmm. It's rough. Yeah. And uh, Daphne is transformed into a tree. Mm-hmm. Actian is transformed into the deer. Yes. That he's hunting and he's pulled apart by his own dogs. His own dogs, yep. But of course, Ovid can't resist in the midst of this terrible tragedy. He can't resist, including a lot of humor. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. But you want to open us up with the with the lines that start this episode? Yes, I'd like to read some of this Latin here. Yep. Prima napos inter tot res tibi cadema secundas, causa fuit luctus aliena qua cornua fronti, adita vos qua cane satiatae sanguine rilli. At benisi quaerdras fortunae crimen in illo, non scelos invenies quod nim scelos erdror habebat. Very nice. Thank you. Very nice. Um, let me give you Lombardo's Let's hear uh, take. Your first reason to grieve, Cadmus, amid so much happiness, was your grandson Actaeon. Strange horns grew on his forehead, and his hounds glutted themselves in the blood of their master. But if you look well, you will find that the fault was fortune's, not Actaeon's sin. What sin is there in error? Yeah, isn't that incredible? Right. I can't help to think of, you know, Ovid's own biography, that, you know, that he was famously mm-hmm. uh, exiled for a Carmen, a song, et uh, error. That's right. right. Could he? Could there? I mean, I don't What's the timeline here? This is before. The metamorphoses were finished in the first decade AD, and I believe his exile was around 8 AD. Okay. So the timeline's very, very close. Right. So, it, I mean, but the fact that he's, what, what, what harm is there in an error? A I, simple I, mistake. Right. I can't help thinking that he's saying it about himself. He may very well be looking forward to the, the doom and the gloom that he knew was approaching. Yeah. Right. The sentence. The Latin here is really nice. Quotanim skelis error habebat. What crime, what skelis does an error possess? Right. 
I just made a mistake. I forgot to carry the one, right? <laughs> right. And look what happened. Right. So an unjust punishment uh, in his exile, an unjust punishment to Acteon. And the other interesting thing about this is that he lays out the plot completely in the first five lines. Right. It's like the opening of the Odyssey, too. You learn, learn no everything suspense. that's going to happen. No now, that's not the point. No, it's interesting how the story's developed, not precisely what happens. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the mountain was stained, here we'll go on with a little Lombardo, with the slaughter of beasts. Noon had already contracted the shadows, and the sun was midway between both horizons, when the imperturbable young Boeotian, that's our hero Actian, spoke to his hunting companions as they wandered through the trackless wild. Our nets and blades are wet with blood. The day has brought us enough luck. When Aurora rolls in another dawn on her saffron wheels, we'll go at it again. But now Phoebus is in mid-course and splits the fields with heat. Call it a day and bring in the nets. Well, that's quite reasonable. So he's exercising the important uh, cardinal virtue of moderation, right? Mm-hmm. He's being temperate. We've hunted enough for one day. Let's let's call it quits. Right. This again reminds me of. Uh, I mean, this shows up a lot in these stories that you know, going too high, going too far, going too of low, course. right? And so Acton seems seems to be a guy who gets it. Yeah, made in a gun, nothing in excess. That's right. Stick we've, in the middle. We've caught enough animals. Let's let's uh, take a break. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Dave, pick it up there. Okay, so the men did as he, that is Actian, said, and left off their work. There was a valley there called Gargafier, dense with pine and bristling cypress, and sacred to Diana, the high-skirted huntress. Deep in the valley is a wooded cave, not artificial, but natural. But nature in her genius has imitated art, making an arch out of native pumice and tufa. On the right, a spring of crystal clear water murmured as it widened into a pool, edged with soft grass. Here the woodland goddess, weary from the hunt, would bathe her virgin limbs. So what we have here is the locus amoinus. Yes. We have the place that is too beautiful, too perfect, too idyllic, not by artifice, but by nature herself. Mm -hmm. And of course, a secret danger lurks there. Yeah. It's going to be Actian's terrible undoing. Right. What's really striking about this story is that uh, right after uh, Actian stops speaking, the focus completely becomes, it's on the perspective of Diana. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about her. It's about her entourage. And Actian just becomes this this cipher, the victim story. Yes, innocent bystander who becomes torn to pieces, right? Mm -hmm. Who is torn to pieces. Can you pick up there, Jeff? Sure. When she arrives there, she hands her spear and quiver, an unstrung bow to one of her nymphs. Another takes her cloak over her arm, two untie her sandals, and Crocale, cleverer than these, gathers up the goddess's hair from her neck and ties it in a knot while her own is still loose. Nephile, Hiale, Rianus, Aranus, Pisekas, and Fiale draw water and pour it from huge urns over their mistress. Mm -hmm. So the goddess, like all immortals, is very tall, right? Mm -hmm. A goddess is about nine feet tall. She has a rosy glow at the nape of her neck and a certain kind of smell from the ambrosia they consume. Mm -hmm. And they don't walk. They promenade as a Juno in the Aeneid, right? She incate it, incatera. She glides across the ground. Is, it, is, she, is he prancing? I'm trying to picture this. Is no, it? no. Her feet don't touch. You just kind of glide. Just kind of glide? Like, you ever been on one of those um, moving sidewalks, That's, what, right? how, that's At how they the get airport? around? Yes. Yeah, okay. They don't have to actually move their limbs. They just kind of float. Okay. That's how you know you're in the presence of a deity. So uh, she is this, you know, beautiful, really tall, statuesque, uh, immortal, and she's, you know, it's bath time, so all the nymphs are assisting her. Acting is going to stumble upon this through no fault of his own and be rent limb from limb. Yes, yeah, so give us this key scene here. Okay, so while Diana was taking her accustomed bath there, Cadmus's grandson, his work done for the day, 
came wandering through the unfamiliar woods with uncertain steps and, as fate would have it, into the grove. As soon as he entered the grotto, the nymphs, naked as they were and dripping wet, beat their breasts at the sight of the man, filled the grove with their sudden shrill cries, and crowded around their mistress Diana, trying to hide her body with theirs. But the goddess stood head and shoulders above them. See, it's the height is the issue. Her face as she stood there, seen without her robes, was the color of clouds lit by the setting sun or of rosy dawn. Then, though her nymphs pressed close, she turned away to one side and cast back her gaze, and as much as she wished, she had her arrows at hand. What she had, the water, she scooped up and flung into that male face, sprinkling his hair with vengeful drops, and adding these words that foretold his doom. Now you may tell how you saw me undressed, if you are able to tell. So it's over for Actaeon here. It's done. Right. So I think I saw in, in your notes, kind of musing about what is this story about? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, a take on it that it's about, it's a defense of, of chastity and modesty. Um, and I think it's true uh, to the degree that uh, Diana, Artemis, like Athena, is uh, one of these virgin goddesses whose virginity is is it's fiercely guarded. Mm-hmm. And just even the smallest suggestion that it might be compromised means that there is uh, a huge punishment on the way. Yes, there's no there's no innuendo, there's no lewdness, no crude jokes with these goddesses. Right. Everything has to be very very straight. Yeah, there is kind of that uh, the defense of. I mean, not maybe not chastity or modesty kind of writ large, but for these particular deities, mm-hmm. like the, Diana is so sacred that even an accidental encroaching, uh, just the suggestion that her, her, her modesty has been compromised means that has to be canceled out with some kind of horrible punishment. Well said, exactly so. So before I uh, continue the story, right. I want to get your opinion on, on a, a comparison. What okay. This story often reminds me of that scene from the Old Testament where the Ark of the Covenant is being carried along on the cart, hits a bump and it starts to fall off. And this guy reaches out his hand to steady it, mm-hmm. to put it back on, and he's struck dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that's a story that as a kid, it always bothered me. Right. It's like, what, what did that guy do wrong? Right. Isn't that a good thing that he did to, to protect this, this, right. this sacred object, which represents the full presence of the deity? Mm-hmm. But what the, what the story underlines is that so sacred is this deity that even an accidental encroaching upon the presence means that a mortal cannot withstand that encounter. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's a similar kind of message here with Diana that, um, yes, it's horrible what happened to Acteon, but the message is really about the sanctity of this goddess. I think that's accurate. Okay. Yeah, I think that's an apt comparison. Uh, Specifically, as you phrased it, right? The consequences for mortals are dire, Mm -hmm. but the sanctity of the divine presence has to be maintained. Okay, okay. All right, let me pick it up here. With that brief threat... She gave his dripping head the horns of a stag, stretched out his neck, elongated his ears, exchanged feet for hands, long shanks for arms, covered his body with a spotted hide, and instilled fear in him. Adonoe's heroic son took off, marveling at how fast he was running. But when he saw his face and horns in a pool, he tried to say, oh no, but no words came. He Hold on now. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. tried to say, oh no, but no words came. He was, he was too deary. Yeah, he has a deer snout. This is just like <laughs> Io back in book one, trying to communicate with her father that she has been transformed into a cow. Mm-hmm. And all she can do is moo and scratch Io in the dust with her hooves. Right. So to my mind, this is the first instance of Ovid not being able to tell a true tragedy. He's yeah. got to veer into comedy, right? Because now we are compelled to imagine... What would it be like to try to say, oh, no, with the deer's snout? It would right. be really difficult. Right. This, this is uh, in Apuleius's, um, his own novel called The Metamorphoses of the Golden Ass. 
this this scene looms large. Mm. Uh, the main character who turns into a donkey. Oh no! He encounters this uh, the Diana Atia motif as a, a work of art, mm-hmm. and uh, Apulus makes much uh, comedy of Lucius as a donkey, trying to say like. Yeah. Oh, my king! But it only comes out as like you know, as a donkey braying hee haw. Right. Like, right. And so it, he's clearly he's clearly kind of playing off Ovid here. Yeah. So he doesn't buck the trend, you might say. Right. Right. Buck the trend. Oh. He didn't catch it. Oh, man, it's late. Okay. It's late. He tried to say, "Oh no!" But no words came. He groaned. The only sound he could make, and tears ran down his cheeks. No longer his own. That that shift there from kind of a like you know, stupid comedy right. to something very tragic. Right. Right. Only his mind was unchanged. What should he do? Return home to the palace or hide in the woods? Shame blocked one course and fear the other. Yeah, no no out for him. Shame, fear, these are his two options. Uh, but actually, this problem is going to be solved by fate because he's about to be torn apart. Right. As Ovid set it up, this is mm-hmm. fortune's decision. Yes. Yep. Let me read this little part, and then we'll get into the comedy even deeper. Excellent. While Actian hesitated, his dogs spotted him. Now, what we're about to have is a catalog of dogs that goes on for some 21 lines. This is a dogalogue? This is a dogalogue. <laughs> you just stole my line. Winkle. You want the line? I came up with that. All right, all right. No, it's a team effort. Yeah, I did come up with the term dogalogue just to, you know. It's true. Put Make a point of it. It's true. But uh, it's a team effort. So, first Blackfoot and keen-nosed tracker bade. Tracker a Cretan, a Spartan breed Blackfoot. Then others rushed at him swifter than wind, greedy gazelle and mountaineer, Arcadian all, powerful deer slayer, hunter and whirlwind, then wings and chaser the bloodhound and woody. So these are all names of dogs. Mm -hmm. These are all capitalized in the text. Uh, Lately gored by a boar and wolfbred valley, trusty shepherd and snatcher with both her pups. There was lean catcher, a Sicyonian hound, runner and grinder, spot and tigress, mighty and whitey and black-haired soot. These were followed by Spart, known for his strength, and by Stormy and Swift and the speedy wolf with her brother Cypriot. Next was Gasper, oh, I'm sorry, Grasper, a white spot in the middle of his jet-black forehead. Blacky and Shaggy and Fury and White Tooth with a Cretan sire and a Spartan dam, bell-toned Barker and others we need not name. There were more? He just he cut it off prematurely. On yeah. Dancer, on Exactly. Listen. Let me count how many dogs we got here. I, I counted them once. I think there's something like 27. He, so he's hunting. These are all his... Why do you need so many dogs? Have you ever hunted with dogs? No. You need quite a few. You need one. No, they bay and they bellow and they... I don't know. They've... Scare out the game. That's you're, what they you're do. You're trying to sneak up on a on a on a deer, and you got 27 dogs. <laughs> There's no sneaking. You corner them. You corner them. <laughs> okay. They they flush the game from the underbrush. Okay. Wow. And this is an incredible passage. It is. Yeah. Because all of these are in such beautiful hexameters. Ovid can turn a line like nobody. Right. And there's a dog named Spot in there. I, I like that. I enjoy that. Yeah. Greedy and Gazelle and Tigress <laughs> and Grinder and Grasper and Cypriot and Stormy and Swift and. But you see, he can't uh, resist telling jokes at this highly tragic moment. So, so you think kind of his this going on and on is it's is, ref- is yeah, comedy? It is because look, it's catalog poetry, right? Mm-hmm. And who invented catalog poetry? Well, Homer, book two of the Iliad, the catalog of ships. Right, that wasn't funny though. No, exactly. That's the point. <laughs> okay, <All> right. <laughs> so he says, "You want an epic convention? Here's an epic convention. How about a long list of the names of dogs?" Okay. So he's taken he's taken the 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 Homeric catalog and kind of just uh, turning it upside down, right? Yeah, or right. the epic convention of all the other epicists, yeah, 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 yeah. and it's it's something grand, in the words of Torquato Tasso, right? Something grand and lofty and an imitation of important heroic action. Yeah. No, it's a list of the names of dogs. Yeah, it's great, right? And then you notice that he also again he kind of flips from that 
that kind of ridiculousness to something tragic again. He longed to shout, I am Actaeon, know your master, but words wouldn't come, and the sky rang with barking. Mm. And the fact that these dogs, which I assume he would have been very close to, would have loved, they turn on him. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you read that next part? What happens? Black hair bit him in the back, and then the bitch killer. Then Hill got hold of a shoulder and wouldn't let go. These three had left late but got ahead of the others. By a shortcut over the mountain, while they held their master down, the rest of the pack converged and sank their teeth into him. Soon there was no place left on his body to wound. He groans, making a sound that is not human, but still not one any deer could make. <laughs> so the transformation's not complete. Oh, right. So that makes it even more horrifying. Right. right. And fills the familiar ridges with his mournful cries. On his knees now, he turns his silent eyes from side to side as if he were a suppliant, stretching out his arms. And now the ravenous hounds are urged on by his friends who know no better with their usual yells looking around for Acteon and outdoing each other with their shouts, Acteon, as if their friends were absent. He turns his head at the sound of his name, but they go on complaining that he is not there and through his sluggishness is missing the spectacle their prey presents. Man, brutal stuff. Ovid, he wishes he were absent, but he is there all right and would rather see than feel what his dogs are doing. They are all over him, their jaws into his flesh. Tearing apart their master in a deer's deceptive shape, they say that Diana's anger was not appeased until he ended his life as a mass of wounds. So it wasn't enough to simply kill him. He had to be basically tortured to death yes, for well, her to be it, happy. Yes, and it wasn't enough even just to transform him into a deer. He had to die a yeah. gruesome, painful death. Right. Well, we've seen we see that that Diana Artemis elsewhere. I mean, she demands the the uh, human sacrifice of Iphigenia. That's right? correct. Because her sacred stag was was killed by the men. Brutal. So this is. I mean, I mean, it's in keeping broadly with her 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 persona. All right, I got a, I got a hot take on this. Okay. I was reading through this this passage before before I started recording today, and um, could this be a version of the assassination of Caesar? Oh, that's really interesting. Surrounded by these twenty-seven of his closest friends. Exactly. Right, and if you if you compare, of course, Suetonius is he's writing later, right? Yes, uh, much later. Much later. I mean, the way he describes, you know, um, you know, Caesar's eyes darting about, and um, you know, other versions have him not saying anything, but uh, you know, trying to mouth words as he's going down. Mm, that's a brilliant suggestion. I don't, I, may, I don't know if it's been made before, but that that's, that is a brilliant suggestion. Hmm. I don't know if it can be proven, yeah. But I'm never going to read this passage again without thinking of that because it hits so close to home. Yeah. Yeah. So it just struck me. I, th- I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It, it is very interesting. So to try to extend the comparison a little bit, what was um, Caesar's crime that compares to Acteon's crime of seeing Diana bathing naked? He uh, he wanted uh, dictatorship, right? He wanted supreme political power. He wanted to harm somehow uh, Roma, right? yes. the, the Lady Roma yeah, or yeah, Lady yeah. Libertas. Yeah. So in Lucan, right, in the uh, De Bello Coila, the the Lucanian epic, um, when Caesar is about to cross the Rubicon, I can't remember which book of Lucan it's in, the goddess Roma appears to him, or Tarpeia, oh, yeah. and begs and pleads with him, don't cross the Rubicon, don't do this. It's, it's a water place, right, like the pool. Yes. And uh, Caesar basically says, he listens to this long speech, this pleading speech, and then Lucan says, well, he crossed the river and inaugurated war. Right. It's very matter of fact. So it's a similar kind of uh, crossing a threshold that cannot be uncrossed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. We'll have to do an episode on Lucan or several, of course. Of course. Another wonderful epic. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, are we ready to wrap it up? We are. Okay. Getting a little long, maybe. Uh, We want to point the listener to this gorgeous late Renaissance painting by Cesare. It's uh, 1603. 
It's a lot of nudity in this painting. There is. Yeah. On the far right, you can see Actian, and uh, in the center, you can see um, all unclothed the nymphs, and then of course. Um, Diana, who's standing taller than all of them, and they're all desperately trying to cover themselves up, and uh, Actian is caught in the act right, yeah. of looking at her, and the dogs are all uh, nipping at his feet, and you can see the horns have sprouted he's on the top of his he's head. He's already begun the transformation. Correct. Right there's just, there seems to be about 24 dogs missing. <laughs> From but, the painting? But Cesare, he couldn't, he couldn't fit them all no, in. No, no. He... All dogs playing poker. Exactly. <laughs> it was more uh, nymphs, more nymphs than dogs yes. here, of course. But it's just such a gripping, disturbing painting. I, I find it so compelling. And the colors are brilliant, obviously. Yeah. So uh, that's a 1603 painting. Exactly. So we encourage the listeners to go track that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we wrap up, we got to talk a little bit, just a little bit about interpretation. Okay. So we mentioned earlier in the episode that the ostensible theme of the epic is transformation. Yes. That's the title, after all. Right. You don't like the story, don't worry, it's going to change. Mm -hmm. But many interpreters have said that the real theme of the story is love. Mm -hmm. Now, not love in the sense of happy ever after, happily ever after, but love in all of its various and often uh, contorted, twisted forms. Yes. Right. I think we saw two clear examples of that tonight. Yes. Yes. In both instances, love gone wrong. Right. In the first with Apollo and Daphne, uh, it's an unwanted love. Cupid has engineered it. It's beyond the control of both of them. Right. And with Actaeon and Diana, it's it's an accident, right? Correct. And, and even just the suggestion that there might be some some funny business going on has to be dealt with. Yeah, it has to be brutally punished. Mm -hmm. So there's a quote here from uh, our favorite, my favorite uh, critic of Latin literature, Conte. GB. Yeah, Jean Biagio Conte from yeah. uh, page 354. He says, the central subject of the work is love. Right. And I remember when I first read the Conte entry on Ovid, I was completely and totally convinced by it. And I've been using this kind of language ever since to teach the two epics, the, the uh, Aeneid and the Metamorphoses. Mm -hmm. So he says uh, on the same page, for Ovid, myth does not have the religious value or the profundity that it has for Virgil. I, I would definitely agree with that. Right. Right. There's a heaviness in Virgil that's not that's not on these in these lines. No. There's a beauty, right? I, I tell people, if you want to really think deeply about the meaning of life, you read Virgil. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a good laugh <laughs> <laughs> and maybe occasionally think about things, Ovid's your guy. Right. So it means uh, Virgil is is opera and Ovid is a is a great pop song. Yes. Now Conti also he also writes uh, that uh, Ovid gives us a quote, detached smile at the fictitious character of the content. So yeah. he's always kind of winking at us. Right. Yeah. And that's that's what I find so compelling. He has the comic muse. And so even when he's talking about something serious and witty and tragic, he just can't turn it off. Right. He's got to say something witty. He's got to make a joke. He's got to, he's got to drop a dog-a-log. A dog-a-log. <laughs> dog <a> <laughs> right. All right. We're up against the clock. We got to get out of here. Absolutely. Right. So um, as always, we got people to thank. Yes. We want to say thank you, Mishka, for putting this together, being our sound engineer so intrepidly, making it sound wonderful. We're really appreciative. We do. We, uh, we also, big thanks to uh, Scott Vinzen and to Ken Tamplin for the great music you hear throughout the the episodes. And Scott's got some new music coming out, right? Yes, he does. Yes, he's got a new album where he actually sings. I'm, I'm a great fan of his instrumental stuff. Uh, 
I think it's called um, "Without Words." Yeah. Is, is the uh, the awesome awesome instrumental the stuff that you've passed along to me? I mean, the guy can play. Oh, it's incredible! It's unbelievable. So yeah. check it out. We love to hear from our listeners. So keep those the emails coming in and the suggestions. Uh, write to Dave at oddnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or if you want to drop a note to me, Jeff at oddnauseum.com. Again, don't forget the V. Get yourself a shout out. Yes. Tell us what you like about the show. If you must, tell us what you don't like. That's okay too. Yeah, that's fine. That's right. Check out the website. Um, check out some of our merchandise, the t-shirts, stickers. Yes. It's there for Lurch the, with merch, yes. we always say. Yep. And Jeff, what do we have for next week? What's ne- on tap? Next week, we are going um, uh, seasonal. We're going to do some ancient Greco-Roman uh, ghost stories. Oh, should be spooky. It should be very spooky. It's maybe, coming up for Halloween, right? Yeah. We, maybe we can get some of those uh, those eerie sound effects that we used for the Underworld episodes back Yeah, the in. pain in the Nequia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. That's, that's going to be a lot of fun. It should be good. That'll be episode number 60. Oh, wow. Very exciting. And Dave, you got the gustatory party shot tonight. I do, and I like this because I am a great fan of pie. Oh, me too. And so here we have, once again, thank you, Janet Clarkson, Pie, A Global History. <laughs> the strangely marvelous thing is that we refuse to relinquish the pie. We cling to the idea of it with some fervor in spite of its fading reality on our tables. Why is it so? What is it about pies? <laughs> what is it indeed? Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.